1: No purchase necessary. Void Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Total Education Show. The talk shop for teachers, parents, and administrators. Here's your host of the show, Neil Haley, the Total Tutor.
2: We're back at the Total Celebrity Show on the Education Network. Again, Totaltutor.net for more information. Twitter, Tutor, Neil S. Haley, Facebook. LinkedIn, Neil Haley. Instagram, ToldTutor. Pinterest, Neil Haley, and Google Plus, Neil Haley. And I tell you what, every day I get to interview the most interesting people. And it's interesting, this actor, I knew him on Melrose Place, but I had to do some research and go back and dig into all the different acting experience he has and he's a jack of all trades in so many ways. And I, the first story I want to talk to him about he'll kind of laugh for sure so i'm excited to welcome the program award-winning actor james wilder james thanks for calling and how are you today I'm doing great. You? Yeah, I'm doing fantastic. Any time to get to do this, this is so much fun because you get to learn so many different things. So, James, I'm a researcher. Because of education, the first thing is, hey, I know I remember James in Melrose Place, but I said, I'm going to go back and dig deep. So I found an interview with you because I wanted to learn about who am I going to be interviewing today. And I found you on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. How about that one? And that was a quite an interesting interview you did with Jay, for sure.
0: Yeah, that was kind of a cool one. Yeah, yeah. That, I think I did two, but that, yeah. Uh tell me which one.
2: The one where you uh, with the fire talking about the street show stuff, and then oh, right, and you, right, that right. was that was awesome. You were of Maury Povich. It was it was quite interesting to say the least.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was like a you know an emergence out of my street performing era into. I think I was promoting the show Route 66. I think Propaganda Films, we did a remake of Route 66
2: yeah you were with uh I guess the other big time eighties person well who was that guy? what was his name or the the, the, the dan, Cortez. dan Cortez yeah dan, dan Cortez, Cortez yeah. see I, yeah. i'm trying to you know date myself back. I was born in seventy three so i'm trying to remember what, did I see that or i didn't see that I was a semi fan of Melrose place, but you know going back and researching these times and thinking and i'm sure in your life the same way, James you remember certain times of your life more than others because you're so busy i was a I was a uh, uh, college basketball player high school basketball player always you know never always having that time for television where now pop culture is a big thing i see all the time so i wanted to go back but it was just interesting your story talking about growing up and how you made money in san francisco with the the and then how you spit fire that was quite interesting i never see that always on a a celebrity doing something like that
0: well i tell you what was a real trip I went to this basically all-boy parochial school up in San Francisco. I mean, that in itself is sort of a paradox. And um uh, but the thing is they re- really didn't train you to make money. You know, they trained you for full-on college preparatory uh education. So I, growing up in that whole Bay Area and being very bohemian, you know, I had a fisherman's wharf with a big tourist inflow, and everybody was trying to make money off the tourists just because that happened to be part of what the inflow of cash was, and I read a book a long time ago called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which kind of was a really... Yin Robert
2: Rob, Robert Kiyosaki, correct? Right. There you go. I uh, interviewed, I know, interviewed Robert Kiyosaki, so yeah. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. There? Oh, did you? Wow. I was such a such a fan of this guy. It was so great. I think it should be, you know, indoctrinated into the basic educational program across the entire United States, especially like, you know, mixing capitalism with kind of uh, uh, yin and yang, and you know, the whole inflow, outflow of liability, asset flow charts. Anyway, but we were reading Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, in Old English, imagine these kids, like six, yeah. seven years old, trying to read Old English when they barely know how to speak regular English, and passing out, whatnot. And I bought this book over to the side, and it was for my own, you know, particular reading. I said, you know what? I got to get on the game, and I got to start making money because this is kind of what it's about. And so I put together a little one-man street show, and I was about nine years old at the time. And um, everybody was, you know, playing guitars or doing mimes. And there was Gary Anderson and A. Whitney Brown, who ended up being one of the head okay. writers at Saturday Night uh, Live. And I put this show together, blowing fire and juggling knives and doing chain escapes and tightrope, all kinds of daredevil stuff, because it went so against going to an all-boy parochial school in a suit and tie every day. Right, exactly, it was so ultra, ultra conservative. And that thing really fared well for me for a long time. I ended up, uh, you know, working in the Moulin Rouge in Paris. And when I came down to Los Angeles, I was down at Venice Beach, and I was kind of juggling running chainsaws at the time. And I was building, you know, motorcycles and hot rods and cars. And I kind of they kind of landed me into really out-of-the-box parts. And the very first acting role I ever got ever was um, them spotting me in Venice Beach, juggling probably fire and okay. blade and chainsaws, and said, hey, we want to put you in this movie in an audition scene, and it was a movie called Can't Stop the Music, and the very first scene, it was with the village people, who, oh, wow. uh, you know, is a whole, you know, crossover crowd, exactly. I guess. Yeah. and... And it was a little, you know, like, oh, wow, this is kind of weird, you know. And they said, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry. We're going to give you a scene with um, either Steve Gutenberg or Bruce Jenner. Oh,
2: wow. oh and <laughs> so speak, speaking of very, Bruce Jenner now, James. <laughs> my <laughs> yeah. very
0: first scene ever was like, oh, I'll, I'll go with Bruce Jenner, man. <laughs> he's a Catholic, and he's a man. He's a man. man. I'll feel <laughs> comfortable. That was my very first acting scene was with Bruce Jenner. I It was said, what a trip how time flies and things change and people change their minds about, you know, who they are and what they
2: are. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What
0: a, what a trip, man. It was such a trip. So when we go to Jay Leno, bringing him back up, up the snuff, um, I, I was really into, you know, building hot rods and, and rat rods and, uh, you know, street bikes and whatnot, and, um, all of a sudden, Propaganda Films, who did Less Than Zero and some really cool projects, said, we're going to attempt a really ballsy remake. And, and I was like, of what? Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, just like they're doing the Mad Max remake? You know, that's really, you got to have some brass balls to take that on, especially when you're taking it from Bell Gibson. They did such an amazing yeah. job back mm-hmm. then. Um, but route sixty six they said all right well it 's iconic if we if we hit it, we hit it, and if we fail, you know we, we at least we went down in flames with an iconic show, which we did. we went down in flames it didn 't hit uh and they kind of they kind of sabotaged. i mean i don 't know they tried to make it funny and and they didn 't really go the right direction they changed they got scared i think halfway through, but um that was it. I was all of a sudden like this you know par builder and doing a show about hot rides and with Route 66 and 61 Corvette. And that was sort of the situation with Jay Leno. So, So that's almost before uh,
2: the days of Pimp My Ride. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. I interviewed
2: the, the guy from Pimp My Ride exhibit. Right. So not, not yet, yeah. So, uh, it. so it's it's it's, it's funny uh, the stories for sure. And so at that point, would you say that was your biggest role? Was Route 66? Because Jay's like you know, because I know you from Mellow's Place. But where I want to mm-hmm. for our listeners out there, because you know, the we have genres of different age groups that listen to radio shows, and then they could right. be they could say I don't remember this guy, but then you bring up these specific things, you're your award-winning actor, and then also the whole thing with HGTV, which we'll talk about, but talking about all the roles you had before Melrose Place, was that one of your right. biggest things, being with Dan Cortez in Route 66, or was there something bigger before that? Well,
0: you know, I guess it depends what you mean by bigger. Uh, bigger I like mean, pop,
2: uh, pop culture-wise, not like an actor saying, hey, this was a great gig. Yeah. culture yeah, yeah. Wise.
0: You know what? It's pretty hard to top Melrose Place as far as pop culture. Yeah, and
2: that I mean, was, was after, it. that was, but, the, but the Melrose Place was after Route 66, 66 right? Uh,
0: yeah, you're right. Yeah. So what would pre, um, what would be pre, well, pretty much I didn't, I'd stuck the film before getting into Route 66. Um, I think I did a series called Equal Justice with Sarah Jessica Parker. and That was, we won a lot of awards, but it did not become pop culture iconic. Um so I w- I would say hmm popularity wise it would Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, I, if I if I pulled out, I, if I'm
2: I gonna... if I pulled out all the Bruce different Jenner. things. How about Bruce Jenner, uh-huh.
0: man? Nothing bigger than that. Would say we just didn't know how big he was gonna become at the
2: time. Yeah, you know, James. I know that. that but ahead of the curve. So, do you know Bruce personally, by the way? Still after that no, experience? No, I don't. No, you don't, don't at know. all. You know, you know L.A. and how L.A. is, but I guess not. Yeah, you're not. No. You're not keeping up with the Kardashians at all. I don't know.
0: <laughs> Bruce, Yeah, just. Yeah, I mean, I guess Bruce is getting to know Bruce. You know what I mean? I mean it, uh yeah, no, no, not at all. Uh, it's funny, I'm not I'm one of those actors too that've never been a networker and I've never been someone that like, you know, likes to rub elbows and, you know, meet people and I just I'm very kind of reclusive that way. I get very uh involved in my own art projects and and then, you know, uh I put them out there Right. And you, you, go, go.
2: you have so many different roles you've played in your career. and I mean, I could pull out this whole thing and, with IMBD and look at the list and see all the different TV shows you were on and different things. But you're right. Uh, Equal Justice was a huge uh, hit for you because, again, that was part of it. The, and then we we'll go into the award-winning acting. But getting the – so what I'm saying by going on – I was thinking when you were on Leno, I was thinking, oh, this is for Melo's Price, right? Because you know, I'm just searching, and I'm like, wow, this is for – Sixty-six. So they were hoping this was going to be pretty big. You and Dan Cortez, two very good-looking guys. This is going to be perfect, right? That was their hope. The, the, yeah, that works, it yeah. was
0: kind of the Clinton era. And they originally it was going a much better direction, in, in my opinion. Um, and they kind of all of a sudden said, you know, that's when they came up with the word dramedy. I was like what the hell is dramedy where they can't make up their mind whether it's a drama or a comedy so instead of it being a drama with some human you know some human uh, comedic relief out of situation they decide well you know it's got kind of a 50% comedy it's 50% drama and we're going to call it dramedy and it just kind of lays there if it doesn't come off you know uh, I mean, Breaking Bad is such an awesome show, I would never label that as dramedy. You know, it's just, uh, it's got incredibly funny moments out of human drama. But they tried to do this thing, sort of dramedy, and then it just became propaganda films kind of warring with Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers wanting to find, you know, a, a, a funny show. And, it, you know, it just kind of uh, builds itself which unfortunately it did,
2: but that's okay. That happens too. Well, definitely. Okay, so how this lead us up to Melrose Place, because I know everyone, and what an an amazing show pop culture-wise. So you had the opportunity at Route 66. After that ended, you're like, oh, am I going to ever get my shot again, right, James? Meaning a shot where you're saying to yourself, this is going to be a big deal, this is going to be big for my career, and then you get the opportunity on Melrose Place. Tell us about that.
0: Well, it's funny, I've never looked at what's big for my career. I think I coined a phrase or somebody pointed after I said it where I always said, you know, a resourceful artist will never be a starving artist. So for me, the whole idea of artists, because I grew up in an artist community, I've always been interested in art. You know, it has that communication uh, wavelength that just hits everybody from every language as long as it's good art that communicates. And I was never really interested in trying to create McDonald's hamburger of art and become a billion serve. I was just interested in putting out stuff that, for me, evokes from a natural sense of what I um, want to express. And and some people may dig it, and some people may love it, and some people may hate it. And That's just sort of uh, what necessitates art. So when it came to Melrose Place, I didn't want to do it.
2: Oh, really? I a, wow.
0: No, not at all. Aaron Spelling was the secret producer of an amazing project that that, that uh, I did without patting myself on the back by saying it's amazing, but that's just what I felt when I read it. And it was called Cracked Up, and it was about a track athlete that got, uh, got addicted to crack cocaine. And this was a big issue, just like, you know, breaking bad like meth is right now, but mm-hmm. it was cracked back then. And, and nobody wanted to touch that. It was really. Dangerous and out of the box and a little bit more it was certainly more conservative going back you know a decade or so ago than it was than it is right now, and so this project was his secret baby that he didn't really put his name on, but he wanted to do it, and everybody wanted this project so I got this project, did it, and it was um incredible i mean I just felt so proud about the project and how it communicated. and it had people coming up to me in the street. Oh, my God, you made me reconsider my drug addiction. And I love okay. you, man. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it really made you feel... Amazing. So he then later came to me, and he said, Hey, listen, I, I'm... No Rose Place is up on its feet, and everything's in. I want you to come in and do the show. And I said, I'm not really interested in doing that show. He goes, What's your favorite movie? And I said, Wow, that's left field. I said, Probably... Um, the movie with uh, Billy Zane, Ed Palm, And he goes, okay, what if we do a six or seven show arc replicating pretty much that storyline? Are you in? And I was like, uh, uh. uh." And he goes, hit me, hit me. I go, where are you? He goes, I'm in Vegas. I got a stack of $10,000 chips in front of me. Are you in? And I was like, "Uh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. (laughs) He was a real character, really interesting guy, Aaron Stellingby. And so I, you know, signed up for it just on good faith. And I came in, and that's what we did. We did that arc from basically, um, you know, that that storyline, and that was I came in and came out. It wasn't uh, a regular series member, so to speak, but I guess it was sort of the highest rating they'd ever had. That particular story arc really struck a chord with people, so people kind of associate me as being, you know, um, I guess a regular on that show
2: interesting but that's
0: how that came about it was kind of returning a favor and i <laughs> i was actually glad that i did it because i just didn't really want to get branded or tattooed with a show where everybody can't erase from their mind um you know this particular character so uh but this he was so cool with me when i when we did cracked up that i thought you know what hey maybe reciprocal here Life is a symbiosis, uh, you know, you scratch my back, let me scratch his. let me do that project. And so I said I did. And I was really glad that I did at the end of it because it was kind of out of the box for that show, I felt.
2: So, as an artist, more, uh, would you say, awards are something that you kind of place in a higher regard than pop culture, would you say, in, in different roles no, you play? No, not
0: at all. I love pop culture, and I think awards are really ambiguous. To, it's really strange where they come from. Like, some things that I have won awards for, I went like, why? Why did okay. I get like, these awards for this? And then the other things, I'll go, how come this thing, it, nobody responded to it. But, you know, it's just the way that it is. It's, it's. It's very odd. You know, it's like news. What captures news? Everybody's talking about Baltimore, Baltimore, Baltimore. Meanwhile, there's all kinds of other things going on, but everybody's so transfixed in what's happening in Baltimore that, um, you know, it, it just, it's that way, too, with, with movies that all of a sudden start to capture awards. It just, like, slams down all these awards. I think I got four Best Actor awards with this, just this last film I did, and I'm like, wow, that's sort of overwhelming in a way, but it just becomes a contagious cycle, of things that happen that
2: way. And I think as an artist, you look at staying working. You see that the profession is I got to stay working. I always have to go find a new role, a new opportunity in your career. If for the years, you, that know, what? G- I, you know what? You
0: know, I, no, I don't, actually. Really? I don't feel that way. I, no, not at all, because that's also the trap of an actor. When I, when you say as an artist, yes, but I'm, I'm assuming that your meaning is an actor, because yes. most actors, the problem is the pie gets cut into so many pieces. Yes. First of all, all the money is above the table. There's no, there's no cash on the side. There's no under-the-table money. Uh, Michael Madsen, who's a, an awesome guy, actually, on Conan O'Brien, I ended up duggling machetes over him. While he laid down underneath me, he got caught with his brown bag deal one time trying to make movies, kind of cool, saying, Hey, pay me on the side. And it became a huge thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, oh, we just don't do that in this industry. And I was like, Wow, okay, what a correct industry. So by the time you're done paying your agent, your manager, the SAG, and all these people, the the, the pie gets cut so thin. That you have to keep doing project after project just to keep your head above water. And that's why I always said, you know what? I didn't start as an actor. Uh, I started as a one man show where I keep the whole drag that comes in. And that's what I want to be able to always hold on to to have as sort of my, my wingman. But my one man show, my architecture, you know, lifestyle. Uh, design spaces, designing, like I design leather jackets and build cars and bikes and, you know, kind of in a, in a fashion not as good as but as Jesse James, you know, and be able to bring it in from a lot of other areas so you don't have to do some show that's exactly like the show you just finished but for a different network,
2: uh, you know, mm-hmm.
0: because they only want to hire you for exactly what you just did, you know, unless you're in the Leo DiCaprio, Martin Scorsese, Right, right. Royalty, where you know they just get to tell everybody else what to do,
2: <laughs> or you get or yeah. or you get typecast in the same role over and over and over and over so that, again.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean.
2: And then if you're on a big show like a big hit, you know, sitcom or something, you might as well say you're never going to work again because you're so into that cat. They they can't put you as another in another role because of that. Now, looking at, I want to jump away from acting for a second because of your two projects. First of all. Being an architect and a designer, interesting that you talk about as a street performer and how your creativity and being a street performer, how did that lead to being, you know, doing architecture and design? How did that happen?
0: Well, I think what happened was when I was a street performer, you know, you're doing a one man show and usually it involves props. Um, And so I built my own props for the show flaming things, doing chain escapes. I was a real fan of Houdini as a kid. I'm a lifetime member of the the Magic Passel because I did a, you know, it's a street magician in a a, a David Blaine fashion also. Nowhere near as popular as him at that time, but that wasn't really where I was going, what I was going after. And so in building all these different props, uh, you just learn how to make things with your hands, and they're one-of-a-kind things that eventually have no use for anybody else but you. But they're really cool. (laughs) People really like it. So with this in my shows, I started to do this with, uh, you know, motorcycles and, like, a custom van that I used as my show truck. And I would drive to the Mardi Gras when I was 16 and, you know, perform on the roof of this truck. And then, you know, it was like... uh, you know, like the um, uh, medicine man. You know, it's like a traveling medicine man thing. And um, I was living all over the world. You know, I was booked for 14 to go play in the Moulin Rouge in Paris and in Vienna and then South Africa and all these exciting places all over the world. So it really kept life interesting and exciting and sort of, you know, on edge. Uh, so... When I started to realize you're not really making any money selling bikes and cars unless you are Jesse James and they're true art pieces and you're pumping them at hundred grand, I said, you know what? I'm going to build my own house. I'm a man. I should build my own castle. Let wow. me build my own expression. And I did in an area which I really – and I, I still live in that area and I really love it, is a, uh, It's the Outpost Estates up in the Hollywood Hills. And I did all kinds of strange curious things you know secret passageways behind you know fake door you know, book door cases and internal elevators and a pistol range and you know all kinds of really cool cool uh offbeat things and when I was doing it people thought it was they said I hope you're doing this for yourself because I don't know if anybody else is going to want this you know and I, in my mind I always went well Johnny Depp would probably want it you know um He's offbeat and likes that kind of thing, but uh, uh, that's where I got into building these lifestyle-style spaces, and uh, from the first one I did, people really responded and wanted to buy it, and I didn't want to sell it, so I leased it, and then went next door and built from fresh, you know, ground up, Mm -hmm. and did it again, and that's what kind of kept things alternating between acting and lifestyle space, you know, creating and you know uh, leather jacket designs and keeps you really busy and and humming along, you know? uh,
2: So you definitely became an entrepreneur. You're talking about Robert Kiyosaki and you're talking about Exactly. It all
0: comes back to that book, right? That's fantastic. Right.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, what a yeah. tremendous guy. And just looking at specifically enough, you're talking about, you know, students that are not always the best in school, but yet have the talent and the ability to be an entrepreneur, and they figure it out. You know, they might be on one path to do something they really enjoy, but yet are doing something else that they know are going to pay the bills. And But they love both things because they're choosing. They're not working for somebody. They're working for themselves. And I think that that's where you found, and you found something that can make you money and you enjoy, and then also, you still can practice what you truly love—is—is is, is acting. And when you pick the roles that you like to play, not the ones where you're constantly having to work just to to pay the bills, because that definition of working actor—you don't like that definition in ways because you're forced into roles that you might not want to play instead of doing what you do as an entrepreneur for sure. Now, three holes and a smoking gun again.
0: And in reference to that, I just wanted to put a tagline on that. I'd love to shatter. That expression you brought up earlier, but the term used to be a jack of all trades, a master of none, which meant that somebody knew, knew how to do a little bit of everything, but not really a master of anything. And I think today, with the economy and the way that this big blue marble mm-hmm. and world economy is changing, you have to know yes. how to do more than one thing. Absolutely, and I think it's awesome. It's like somebody that speaks seven languages as opposed to one. I'd rather speak seven languages, kind of semi-fluently, than be, you know, a, a, in the English department. Of one language, and so I think it's much more universally helpful. So for myself, I think for me, I shattered that. Where you know, I've won awards as an, as an architect, and I've won awards as an actor. So I, I guess I'm a jack of all trades for sure, but I'm not a master of none. You know, I'm a master of at least a couple. Right. So yeah, and you know, not not showboating, but just <laughs> it's like yeah. it's an old idea that you have to just ramrod yourself into one area and like an astronaut, just train, 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 learn how to do nothing else. And I just don't think that that's healthy. And I don't think it's interesting, and I don't think it's really what people want to do.
2: No, definitely. From my do I own a tutoring consulting company to I have a radio and television network to I basically uh, uh, do a business coaching and entrepreneur coaching and social media and branding coaching. So I'm always constantly uh doing things and and you get these coaches say you got to stick to one thing forget about it you're, you're you're spreading yourself too thin you can't have all these different things going to be successful then you look at people yeah, like that yeah, I think that, it's
0: it, you know what you can stick to 10 things I mean it, it the, the idea is whatever you're doing if you're making money at it and you're enjoying it, right. what, what isn't that the goal? You know what I mean? And then you want to branch out because everything by human nature, it just becomes repetition, becomes boring. So you want to break Try out them. of the mm-hmm. box, you know, and do other things. So I agree to your listeners, too. Try everything, yes. everything, and, you know, just enjoy it. And, it, and, it, and, it, and if, you can't, if you can't make money at it, you're making money doing something else, make money at it and still do another thing yeah. because you can spend – there's some things I don't make money at, but I still love doing, so I spend money doing it, and I don't care. <laughs> because, <laughs> because you made what the, I want to do. Because
2: you made the money doing something else. So, for example, my radio exactly. show, I make money on the other end, not as much with the radio and television thing, but I love doing it, and I don't want it taken away, for sure. Exactly. All right, and, and, and if you figure out a way to it can brand you for everything else, it really is making money, even though you don't know it is. So, kind of tell us again three holes in a smoking gun, your role in that and promote that, because that's your latest uh, uh, film you're in, and tell us a little bit about that. And But uh, really interesting, James, how you've taken me down this road, speaking and talking about who you are. You're an entrepreneur, an actor, love the word Jack of all trades. But again, you are a master of some, just like I'm a Jack of all trades and a master of some, not all, right. but I'm constantly right. wanting to improve myself and become better at something else. I'm not at this point where I can't do this. I'm, I'm going to stop doing it. No, I'm going to try to keep getting better and better and better till I can become a a master in it, even if it's a few things, but uh
0: yeah, tell, I totally agree yeah and and the, one of the best survival tools, I think, is anything to do with positive motivation, Yes, you know, for me, whatever sort of you know girls all like really you know stuck and dug the secret, you know, and uh guys were very big on Tony Robbins, you know, and what hit kind of both or all groups is another book called The Four Agreements. You know, and these are just all personal agreements. And you know what, this is all like 12-step program. It just depends. They're all basically come down to, uh, I don't want to say a An outgrowth of Buddhism, but it's all personal agreements that you make with yourself to be true to yourself. Right, exactly. And I think that all these things, you allow great things to happen. To you because that's the whole idea i mean there's plenty to go around in the universe <laughs> the universe is it's all made of one thing energy there's plenty of energy around it's just like what are you willing to let yourself have you're only willing to let yourself have what you feel you deserve you know if you're doing bad things and treating people badly you kind of because you have a conscience, don't really you get in the way of letting yourself have a good life so you don't let yourself off the hook so, I mean, I think that that is, for me, what I'm constantly reading is uh, books about, uh, you know, how to win in business by being nice. Yes. So who would think that that book would ever sell? I don't know. Maybe I have the only you, copy. You, you have but, a you have uh,
2: a book in your hands, J- James. I see you writing a book someday for sure. I see it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Great. <laughs> All right. So, so let's go to well, Three Holes, three in smoking, holes in smoking, smoking and Smoking Gun. gun. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah.
0: Three holes in a smoking gun was I kind of took a sabbatical from acting for a while uh, because mm, I just felt it was the right thing to do. And um, projects came my way, and nothing really spun my wheels because I kind of felt like if I don't have a part that's at least as interesting as my daily life, why would I want to go do it? You know, I'm not one of those people that feel like I have to act just so I can say that I'm acting. It didn't really matter to me. Um, it, it's something I need to do because I say, wow, I love this project and it's really good. So I, I was at this particular bar named after Ernest Hemingway, uh, a writer, obviously, and a writer tapped me on the shoulder, um, a stranger at that time, and I turned around and said, hey, can I help you? And he says, yeah, I'm a writer. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, I have a project that I think you're perfect for. And I said, really? I said, tell me about it. He goes, well, it's a writer. I said, so you're a writer in a bar named after a writer offering me the part of a writer. I said, so is Ashton Kutcher going to jump out and say you're punk? I said, for real? And he goes, no, 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 for real. And it really was for real. And uh, this guy and I started communicating and, you know, I read the project and I believed in it and we worked it and it was really a tough project but at the end of the day you know it came off really well we won like wow so many awards it it, it was incredible and it kind of played in the theaters which i really dug which are like the lemleys the landmarks you know these art house film theaters you know it was playing along with whiplash which is that was a great movie so um you know That really made me happy. I've always been happy I'm not one of those actors that can't go anywhere, that I'm stuck at my house because, you know, the fan, uh, through being an icon, being so popular, that now the world becomes much smaller for you instead of becoming bigger for you. So, Well, James,
2: you, you figured out, and again, one of your houses was featured on HGTV, that guess what? Being an architect and a designer might make you more money than in acting. And, and for sure. And if you read up on specific things and you see you enjoy what you're doing, you're an entrepreneur, you constantly want to improve yourself, and that's fantastic. James, where is the best place we can find information on you and learn more about you so that people can watch your movies, learn about your designing and, and, and architecture and all that? Where can they go?
0: Uh, JamesWilderActor.com would be one place, and then the other place would be uh, James wilder facebook i think they have me listed as actor director so i think you have to do james wilder pages but i come up there anyway james wilder at facebook and then the other place for just the properties uh is called the t-h-e modern m-o-d-e-r-n villas v like victor i-l-l-a-s the modern com. most of well, these lifestyle spaces that i put together that are you know there too but you can also find them just by going to jamesweatheractor.com
2: well james thanks for calling uh best of luck to you i'm glad to hear about all your success uh in your career and and now and finally figuring it out you know that what you wanted to do and it's from reading and learning from the best entrepreneurs in the world and seeing what what your true personality is what your true passion is and putting it together into your ultimate job that's I tweet out every day. I love my job, even though I'm an entrepreneur. Awesome. I love my job, and I'm whatever I do, and I constantly want to grow, but I'm willing to wait. I'm not gonna say, "Hey, it's gotta grow all at once." Let's we'll just keep enjoying the ride. So good talking to you, James. I agree.
0: I agree. All right, it's been a take, hell of a ride. All right,
2: all right. Take care, James.
0: Thank you, man. You'll see it. Right, Bye.
2: You too. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Total Celebrity Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back the Toll Celebrity Show on the Toll Education Network again Twitter.net for more information Twitter toldtutor, neil s haley facebook linkedin neil haley instagram toldtutor, pinterest neil haley and google plus neil haley and and through my growth as a radio host for the last 6 years and, and the amazing guests I've interviewed I am really excited to announce that I'm going to be doing a show, uh, a weekly, a biweekly segment, and I'm so excited to welcome the program, Davin Joseph, two-time Pro Bowler, St. Louis Ram, part of Davin's dream team. Davin, thanks for calling, and I guess this is the Davin Joseph show. So, Davin, I'm excited to be talking <laughs> to you on a biweekly basis. How are you? I'm doing great.
3: I'm doing great. I'm, uh, you know, I was honored to get the invitation. You know, it wasn't. A, it was a no-brainer. Uh, I loved our, our chat before uh, being on the air. More often would be good for me. I think it'll it'll be good for you, Lost. So hopefully, be good for listening.
2: Well, absolutely. And I hope to have some of your uh, uh, teammates on the show at one point in time to talk about some specific things your guys are collaborating with. We'll see what happens for sure. Now, Davin, right. I, my mind was on that NFL draft. I tell you, especially trying to see specifically who the Steelers are going to pick again because this is our flagship stations in Pittsburgh, but we're all over the world now. But thinking about specifically every year when you watch the draft, what are you looking for? What your your team has picked or what types of, or do you have uh, current people on other teams? You want to see what the fits are? Or how do you kind of study that draft?
3: You know, I always try to trying to see two things. I want to I want to see if Mel Kiper actually knows what he's talking about because right? <laughs> he's so convinced. Right. So, so number one, I want to see if Mel Kiper actually kind of got it right. But he's good because. You know, trying to get the first five right, and then he throws—he just throws names out there. I don't think his draft board ever stays the same. And so, (laughs) I guess at some point he's always right, right? So that's that's my that's my entertaining part of the draft. But then after that, I look to see uh, who's going to be the next one. You know, who's going to be the next guy to really take over the league? And so, as you watch the draft every year, you know, you're going to have some guys that are highly praised. and, but really, I try to kind of look and see who's going to be the guy that's going to really change the game. And so I'm not sure if I saw one this year. But I, if I had to guess, I would definitely say it's Mariota. I think he, he has all the tools it takes to be an elite player in this league. He has a great attitude. And uh, he's in a situation where yeah, Tennessee is not the best team. But it's definitely not a bad situation. And so. I think they can build things around them. I think they can make them a great player as long as they develop them. And so it'd be fun to watch how it's progress.
2: Exactly, for sure. And, and especially being a St. Louis Ram, the next focus I'm sure you're on is who your team's drafting, correct? To see who who's going to end yep. up going to be your teammates, possible teammates for sure.
0: Yep. Yeah.
3: And I think they did a good job with the draft. I really think they did a, a great job. Um, bring in depth in in with the offensive line. Uh, I think it will create a lot of competition. And you really see, you know, guys go out there to the peak it all. And, and number one, get better. Um, other than that, of course, taking a receiver, you know, in the first round was something that the Rams thought they needed to do. They did it. And uh, now it's about using the tools, taking this OTA time, taking, you know, the time in training camp to develop these guys and, and seeing and putting them in positions to make plays, you know, putting them in position to succeed. And so, uh, um, it's not just about getting the draft pick, but it's also about uh, developing him, giving him the tools that he needs to to grow, develop on and off the field, and, and giving him the support. So uh, Rams organization, I don't have no doubt that they'll do a great job in developing this draft class.
2: Well, definitely, especially when you saw the improvement from last year compared to other years of the St. Louis Rams, trying to bring back the tradition of the days with Kurt Warner, and the the greatest show on turf and trying to bring back that excitement to St. Louis and then having a, a very interesting draft, to say the least. And then you're seeing a lot of players now on the offensive end joining you, Davin. So it'll be a lot of rookies that you're going to help mentor and talk to and uh, and, and offer advice as an, as a nine-year veteran, correct, about the, the league and how, what's the yeah. expectations, all that kind of stuff.
0: Exactly.
3: And I think that's, that's in any city. Any team that's the veteran's role is to definitely help the rookies out. Um, and, and do your part. You know, just always want to contribute to the team. Uh, but, of course, having those rookies come in there, being new to the experience, it's going to be important to have some, some veteran leaders to, uh, to help them adjust.
2: Definitely. And, and, and that's, that's the key component in everything is to really get them because, again, they're used to a college season that's a lot shorter. This is year-round college football, in a way, is year-round, but not to the point where you're playing so many games because by the time Week 15 comes on, you're really the wear and tear. College players are just not used to this, to have that, you know, have to play so much longer of a season and how to keep in shape and how to keep uh, from not getting injured. Right. Davin, that's another big thing sure. that that they're not used to in college where, you know, you might play some patsies where you're blowing them out, especially your Oklahoma Sooners blew out some teams. I'm sure where you got some rest for sure. And you got to rest and not play as much, right. You didn't have to play a full game because you blew out teams in certain games at the beginning of the season, so you didn't have the wear and tear once you got to the NFL, right? That every day, every of game course, you yeah. got to play, yeah,
3: yeah. And I, I totally agree with you. And really, it's it's the physical nature of the sport, and you see, um, guys are trying. What well, you know, of course, our commissioner in, in the league is trying to make uh, the game safer. Right, but it's it's the wear and tear. It's a, it's the consistency of the hit in practice. Uh, on the field. and It's just, it's just in the midst of a period of time. You know, you're really four preseason games, four preseason games, um, along with 16 regular season games, and for some teams, you know, playoff games. And so it's really a long period of time. And that's really that wear and tear on the body that, uh, that the rookies aren't used to. And it's a marathon. It's, it's a marathon. Definitely not a sprint. And uh, you got to be playing your best ball in December, and you see every year, year after year, some teams do great in December, some teams just fall off, and a lot of it has to do with uh, how the coaches manage their players and how the players manage themselves.
2: I mean, look at Denver. You know, everyone thought they're going to the Super Bowl to replay again, play Seattle again, and basically Manning's injury killed them destroyed their opportunity to go further when everyone thought. And then that's when they started to slow down, as you said, December. And because of injuries and because of different things. So it's it's a marathon. It's not just the beginning of the season where you'd say in college football, you know, tell me some of the patsies you've played Davin when you're in Oklahoma, where you beat teams 67 to 15 to 12 or wherever. And you got the opportunity to only play one half. And then later in the year, you have another game where, Hey, we're blowing them out. We're getting ready to go play for a big bowl game or something. We had some rest. The NFL, there's really only one bye week. And that's a big thing. Now, Davin watching the draft. Now, does it remind you of your first, when you were drafted? Tell us that story. I know our listeners are interested in that because this 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 theme Uh, of the draft. Yeah.
3: Of course. And I had a great draft experience. It was, it was awesome because I was with a lot of close family, close friends, of course, my parents. And, um, it was back in my hometown in Holland, Florida. And, uh, you know, we had a small draft party. It was probably about 40 people. And, uh, of course, I was told that I was going to be taken in the second round. So, this was back when the drafts were the two-day deal. <laughs> you know, it, was, right. it was Saturday, Sunday, back right when I got drafted. So uh, first round's going by, and, you know, of course, they was getting taken. I'm just in the backyard chatting up with uh, with the family that was there. And, of course, everybody knows, don't play around on the phone on draft day. Don't play around. <laughs> yeah, so fast. I was getting calls that, that morning. People were calling my phone. And I was just like, look is is draft date. Like just don't call me until after I get drafted. But of course, some people just don't like to listen. So I was getting random phone calls and it was like midway through the first and my phone rang it was from a block number. And I was just like, I gotta answer, right? If you don't answer <laughs> to your job. So I answer and it was uh it was John Gruden. So uh I you know Leading up into the draft, that's exactly where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to Tampa. It was in Florida. It was it was close to home. Um, and of course, Coach Ruben was was awesome coach. You know, been to the play. He, you know, won a Super Bowl, and so it was where I wanted to go. And so when I got the phone call, it was just it erupted from there. Man, I was excited. I think it was the first time I ever seen my dad get emotional uh my mom was crying and our and forty person party turned into basically a block party. And so <laughs> it was uh it was a it was an awesome experience. And uh the next day I was on the road to drive up to Tampa and meet my old line coach because I didn't even meet him in the draft process, in the interview uh process through uh Senior Bowl and um what do you call it, the combine.
2: Right.
3: I didn't meet him. The meet coach Groove. I only met one person from the Buccaneers, and I was the, the uh, um, player personnel director. That was it. Wow. After that, I didn't meet anybody. And so, when I tell you, it was I was blindsided. I was definitely blindsided. But uh, I, I enjoyed my time in Tampa uh, through the ups and downs. It was just great being being a Buccaneer. And now, um, looking back at the draft. It was it was a great experience, and so it's it's awesome to see guys have that same sort of experience now, where you know it's all their hard work is really is uh, celebrated.
2: It definitely is celebrated
3: on the big stage with with uh, you know fans and and the uh, commissioner and other players, and it's 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 awesome. It's awesome.
2: It's the hard work paid off of all the years uh, toiling in that sport to have the dream of playing in the NFL, and it finally comes true, and right. it happens. But a childhood right. dream to play locally, meaning in, in the state of Florida, was awesome, because especially if you, right. you, you, you did not play in Florida for college, now all your friends and family could come watch you play for the Buccaneers. So that's where probably exactly. that made it so exciting for sure.
3: Yeah, and so it was awesome. It was it, it, it actually brought our family closer. Exactly what you're saying, having you know, relatives come to just about every home game um, brought our family closer, and we uh, had something to enjoy together. And, and uh, my mom is a bigger football fan than I am. Okay, I don't even watch NFL Network as much as she does. She puts her time <laughs> in and just media updates. So now really. I don't really have to watch NFL Network because she's going to tell me. Everything that happened on NFL Network, anyways, <laughs> and so, uh, but even my dad too. My dad turned into a big football fan, and, um, and a lot of my other relatives who really, you know, don't necessarily even watch sports are just, you know, fans now. So, but it gave us that something to talk about. It gave us something to do together, and uh, you know, I thank them for you know, I thank the NFL and of course the NFL for that opportunity.
2: Who was your favorite? Uh, who was her favorite team watching before getting drafted by the Buccaneers? Dad, oh
0: man, I
3: I've always been a Buffalo Bills fan, and oh. so my my uh, my role model was Bruce Smith.
2: Oh wow, and okay. he
3: was the truth, you know. So I was I was such a fan that I I was you know in it in it. This was before you know they had. <laughs> before they had, you know, uh, what do they call it, the, the uh, on-direct TV, the uh, NFL Sunday tickets. Yeah. This was before then. So trying to watch Buffalo was, you know, they were good then. So they were kind of prime time a lot. So I was able to see almost every game that they played. But when I couldn't, uh, it ruined my Sundays. I'd oh. say it ruined oh. my Sundays when I couldn't watch Buffalo play. And so I had to just watch the uh, – the cut ups on ESPN and ESPN wasn't as in depth then as, as they, they are, are now. now. Yeah, so yeah. you just you know, you see you just got a little bit you just got a little taste. And so uh, but I followed them for a long time. Uh Jim Kelly's, you know, the Thurman Thomas, Andre Reed and, you know, the whole cast of those guys who, you know, made it to the Super Bowl four times and then come away with a ring, but, you know, some, yeah. some rough, some great, tough times. Exactly, but I, I, I enjoyed it, and so uh, now I still watch them. And you know, I felt so bad for them last year; that they were one game away from uh, making it to the playoffs and after that... a long time <laughs> of being shut out. Uh, but yeah. they seem like they're on the right track with, uh, with the new coach and everything.
2: Definitely, and also the last point, Davin, your mom's favorite team. Your favorite team is the Bills. Who's... Oh, mom!
3: Yeah, oh yeah, she was a. You know, I don't really count these teams. Just to let you know, <laughs> but she she's a bandwagon jumper, and, and this is what I call it because I, I really feel it. She likes the Forty like <laughs> okay. the old 49ers. Okay, she's young, you know, Joe Montana. Like yeah, okay, everybody like right, right, and, it, and she liked Dallas. Ah, oh. so it's like well, yeah, don't so not the two best teams in the league <laughs> you know yeah everybody likes them but it's, <laughs> it's a, so she's still a Dallas and a 49 Niners fan but and she's a fan of whoever I play for so uh i guess she, after i retire she may go back to her old ways but uh she's she's traditionally a Dallas and uh and 49 Niners fan
2: all right, so the first uh, segment of the Davin Joseph show. Now, where is the best place we can find information so our listeners can find out about your foundation, what's going on with you, all the new happenings? Where can they go?
3: You know, they can they can always follow me on Twitter. Uh, at uh, my Twitter handle is DavinJoseph75, and of course, uh, DavinStreamTeam.org is my foundation name, and website, and so you can always you know click on that. Uh, tune in and it's always it's usually something good going on so uh, really just consistently working.
2: Alright well Davin best of luck to you. Talk to you in a couple of weeks and I'll have to figure out what theme next. I thought the draft is perfect but then I think now you're at this point where your off season's almost Time uh, to to to, get, to kind of go back to work again the way they have this set up. You know, it's summer, Summer's coming close. So, what are you going to do the rest of your off yes, season sir. before you got to get to go back to practice? Because the way I guess you uh, know, the, the bargaining agreements are and everything, for sure.
3: Yes, exactly. So you know, with with now the off season coming to a close, it's time to get back to work. And so, I, I'm, I'm in shape. I'm ready. Feel good. And so. You know, it's always about the shit to be the champion, man. You know, it's, it's just it's it's the same. It's the reset button. You know, last year was last year, and this year is all we're worried about. So, I'm just excited to get a chance to work again.
2: All right, well, good talking to you, Davin, and we'll talk in a couple weeks, okay?
3: All right, sounds good, Neil. All
2: right, take care. Okay, see you later. All right, bye bye. You're listening to the Total Celebrity Show, Davin Joseph segment, and we'll be back in just a moment. It's the Neil Haley Show, and I was going to not jinx myself about our celebrity author on because uh, this show, uh, my wife and I are just cult fans of it since it's been on. And uh, every Sunday we're like, okay, it's, it's 9 o'clock Eastern, what's, we got to watch Resurrection. And uh, we just, every time we were, we were left hanging and the season premieres second season, what's happening next? Every time there's a different turn, well, maybe my guest right now might be able to give us a little secret. I doubt it, but again, we got to read his book, so I'm excited to welcome to the program New York Times best-selling author Jason Mott, author of the, a best-selling book, The Returned, that's based on the TV show ABC's Resurrection. Jason, thanks for calling, and how are you?
1: I'm doing very good. Thanks for having me.
2: Absolutely. Now, Jason, uh, now, did you ever think through the return, that this would be uh, such a cult classic of the resurrection and meaning of so many fans that are left h- hanging. And when the, it debuted, did you ever think that it would be turned into a, a TV show?
1: No, I had no, no idea, no inkling at all. You know, it was just a project that I was working on. You know, at the time, I was pretty much an unpublished author as far as fiction goes. So I didn't even think that it would get published, much less, you know, have a television series spun off of it and things like that. So I was completely shocked, um, but definitely enjoyed the ride so far.
2: Oh, I'm sure you are, and, 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 and getting the celebrity status. A lot of authors don't get that, and to look at this the first time, the way they promoted this and left people hanging right at the beginning. I guess when you talk about a boy losing a loved one at an early age, every parent can think of that, and I think that's the, the beginning thing that really brought this show to the excitement, is to see specifically someone come back to life, uh, Jacob losing his life and being brought to the back to the parents twenty years later. I mean, that really just begins this cliffhanger, doesn't it? In so many ways.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's one of those things that we you know lost in and of itself is something that we can all kind of relate to. And so the idea of Harold and this couple you know who's you know their son passed at this very young pivotal point, and they're not only in their son's life but also in their marriage. You know, they were very young when their son was lost, and. To suddenly be back with him again after all these years, you know, it it's a very powerful moment, I think, for the characters, um, both in the novel and within the television series.
2: And uh, wh- when we see uh, specifically the loss and then he comes back and then other people come back, I'm sure that you were uh, live tweeting and were really into this, especially when the, the first premiere came out, right? And people are yeah. like, holy cow, what's happening next? <laughs> come on, Jason, give us a hint, right? For
1: sure. Yeah, very much. I definitely enjoyed um, uh, you know, watching the reaction and watching everyone kind of, you know, discover the characters and discover the show the story itself. Um, it was just a whole lot of fun. You know, um ABC and um Plan B are doing a terrific job with the project. So, it's cool to be a part of that and just kind of see people discover the characters.
2: See people discover the characters uh, and, and understand things, and be left hanging and not know what's the next cliffhanger. And I think that's what television does the best of. But uh, I'm sure Jason, every time you're, you're like this, this episode ends, and your 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 probably your website is uh, is getting tons of hits, and people are tweeting you and. And seeing you on the street saying, what's going to happen next, Jason? Can you give us that thing? And that's probably <laughs> the funniest part, right? Do you ever make that comment? Did you get the chance to read my book as well? Because it's a great way to get people interested in, in reading a book. if They're television fans, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, people will oftentimes ask me, you know, what's going on with the show and what's going to happen next season and what about next episode and things like that. Um, but it's a case where, you know, luckily, you know, uh, Aaron Zellman, who's the showrunner, you know, he gets the he's the one who's in charge of all those hard questions. Um, so I get to kind of just kind of hang back and watch everyone's reaction and, you know, see what he's doing with it, which is, you know, I think he's doing a phenomenal job with it. Um, so it's a lot of fun to kind of be a part of, but also to be able to sit back and just see people's reaction from the outside as well. It's just a lot of fun. So, how did
2: the return do once you the the book had probably made another big run right right after the 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 series started right? People were really Wait. checking out and coming back to that right. Yeah, definitely. You know,
1: once, you know, once people, you know, when the novel came out, you know, it was because it got really good reviews. So it was discovered by a lot of like hardcore readers and people enjoyed it that way. And then once the television series kind of came about, you know, about six months later, you know, hitting television, um, people who had not quite heard of it, which, you know, kind of led to the book that way. And they discovered, discovered it that way. So it was really cool to kind of watch the two, you know, feed off each other, you know, people that had read the book early were excited to see what the television show did with the story, and then people who discovered the show first were excited to find out there was a novel about it, where they could find out more about the characters and just see, uh, you know, the, where the story came from. Um, so the two are actually working, you know, working hand in hand in a pretty good fashion.
2: I, I, I agree. And uh, are the characters in the book pretty much the same characters on the TV show, or are there were different characters added to it?
1: Well, the central characters are, are pretty much the same. You know, the the television series definitely has, the storylines are different. Like the, I would say the first season is maybe 70% kind of from the novel. Um, and then second season, it kind of starts bringing in new characters and kind of expanding the world in and of itself, which I think is just absolutely terrific. Um, so it, it, to, to a certain extent, you know, the heart of it is the same, which to me was the most important part. You know, I wrote this novel and then, so when the television people kind of came knocking and said they wanted to work with it, you know, I don't, I don't mind them changing the characters or changing the story, but I wanted them to really stick to the heart of the project, which is what they did. Um, so it's, it's two different experiences, but also very similar experiences as well.
2: So the storylines in season two are less about the book than in season one, it sounds like to you.
1: Yes, I, yeah, I think yeah, I think that's definitely a fair assessment. Like they're still, um, when you look at the the path that they're going, they're still kind of going the same path, but just taking a slightly different route. Um, so I've actually had a lot of fun seeing that because you know I'll see certain things where there'll be an episode or two where the storyline goes a different way, and it's like oh I didn't see that coming. And then when I look at it on a larger scale, it's like oh they're actually leading into this other part that's actually in the book as well. That's a pretty cool way to lead into that. Um, so yeah, it's pretty interesting. So, for Jason, for
2: our listeners that have not watched Resurrection, and that's and, and viewers, that which you you're crazy not to, and go 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 to your uh, DVR right now, or watch it on demand, watch the entire season, or wait till it comes on uh, DVD, or go to whatever places. Tell us the quick storyline to the premise of the story for sure.
1: Sure. Uh, The premise is basically centered around this global event in which loved ones who have passed away have suddenly begun returning just as they were in life. Uh, It centers on this couple who are in their 70s and their 8-year-old son who drowned several years ago um, comes back to them still exactly 8 years old just as he was. And it's not just happening for one couple. It's actually happening for people all across the globe. Um, so the story just focuses on, you know, how people react to these individuals who are returning. Kind of, and they're not, you know, they're not zombies. They just want back into their lives. They're trying to kind of get these moments back into their life. But people's reactions are very polarized. Some people think that they're kind of abominations. You know, my loved one passed away and people don't come back. And others view it as a second chance to kind of, you know, share share time with people that they've lost and a you know, second chance to get things right. Um, so the story follows that trajectory. It just kind of shows how people react to it and what it means in particular to this couple, Harold and Lucille, in the novel, um, who had their son back and you know, how they feel about it.
2: I know. I know. And, uh, and, and, and the taking us through. Now, if you read the entire book, is that going to spoil the TV at all or no? Because they can continue to do spinoffs throughout, right? Yeah, entire... not at
1: all, actually. Um, yeah, the, the book, that's one thing I actually enjoy, the fact that uh, the t- television show doesn't spoil the book and the book doesn't spoil the television series. Oh, no. okay. um, so you can kind of see both sides of it. Um, it you get different viewpoints from the characters uh, in the novel than you get from the television series. Um, but you know, the old, old flip side of that is you get different viewpoints, which is interesting because you get to see the characters develop in slightly different ways. So their conflicts are often similar, but with just enough difference to make it really intriguing and really new. So,
2: in the book, don't spoil anything because I want to read it. Uh, so, <laughs> did, did, did it end up leaving you hanging? Did, did did that part leave us hanging, just like the TV show? Once you finish the book,
1: well, I think there's <laughs> don't say anything. Definitely, say, yeah, no, no, there, yeah. There, there's definitely some resolution there. Um, there's different degrees of resolution. I'll say that, but there's definitely resolution. Like you, you find out the story for the characters is resolved. I'll say that.
2: Okay. and uh, So basically, do you look like there's going to be a sequel for the book? Any chance of, of continuing the story?
1: Um, for the novel right now, at this point, that's, it's not something I'm working on. I'm kind of working on some new projects right now for the novel. So as far as the novel goes, as of this moment, I don't have any plans to expand on it. Um, that may change. You never know what the future holds.
2: It just depends on what happens with TV, I'm sure. That, 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 and, and if a publisher calls and says, we need to do a project, we'll, we'll go ahead and do that. And... Uh, what would you say like the you know the the, the different storylines i think what made the show for my wife and i enjoying it so much and is that again bringing love loved love ones if they really came back and how would you react and how and so that was pretty much why you came up with this right this whole story right is you're looking yeah, at exactly. the loss of um, a loved one for sure
1: exactly the story kind of came about like my my parents both passed um when i was in my early 20s And, you know, when I started this project, it kind of came about because I had this really vivid dream once. Plus.